Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are nearing the end of this short series, which class teacher Doug Brady has titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. In today's lesson, taken from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 14, we see the activity after the victory. This is so important for us to understand. God has chosen this man, Elijah, to accomplish great things. And in the process, there is no rain for three and a half years, and then suddenly lots of rain? The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin the lessons, which is titled, After the Victory. You will certainly want to have your Bible open to 1 Kings chapter 19. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. Well, we're going to start then. This is an interesting part. Is Elijah courageous? Yes. I mean, we have seen it. Is he a hero? Yes. What was his main goal in everything that he's doing? The primary mission? Bring the people back. Very good, Don. Did, did you tell him that, Damaris? Amazing. All right. To bring the people back to God, to turn their belief back to Yahweh and away from whom, Don? Away from Baal. Baal. Now, wait, who are you pointing at when you say that? Uh, come on now. Now, here's the thing. The battle in Mount Carmel is over. Fire came down from heaven on Elijah's word. Then prayer went up and then rain came down. And finally, Elijah raced Ahab back to Jezreel and beat him even though he was in, oh, even though Ahab was in a chariot. Now, there was a few questions that we kind of left unanswered. And I have looked at them and considered them again. And I want to talk about them right before we start. Number one is, do you remember the position in which Elijah prayed on the top of Mount Carmel? Yes. He was crouched down with his head down to his knees. What is the purpose of that position? Who prays like that? My research indicates that position is portending a new beginning. Was Elijah there to bring a new beginning to the nation, to the kingdom of Israel? Yes, he was. It involves new beginnings, but new beginnings that involve a struggle and pain. Do you know what position that really was for Israeli women? Birthing position. Many times they would have some, or sometimes they'd have a pole, and sometimes they wouldn't. And they would deliver their children that way, in that squatting position. There are pictures of it I could have showed you. There are even statues of it. But 
I think it was very portending that, that Elijah is praying for a new beginning for his people. Now, obviously you know that my position is we in our nation need a new beginning. I'm not telling you that you should pray in that position. I'm not sure I could get into that position. But the fact is we need a new beginning just like the kingdom of Israel did. Number two, the question why did Elijah have to pray seven times before God answered in the affirmative? Been thinking about that. Let me talk to you about something. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. Now, I talked to my expert farmer in the class, and he says when that happens, that ground becomes very compacted, very hard, and when you're plowing it, it's a lot more difficult to plow than if you'd been plowing it every year. Is that right? It, it starts to, the ground will split. All right, well, that doesn't count. So we're going to move on. Now, prior to that three and a half years, what did we have? No, during the three and a half years, the land laid fallow. But prior to that, the hearts of the people in Israel had laid fallow. And they had become hardened. And it was difficult to get through to them. And something spectacular had to happen. God understood that. Elijah understood that. And so seven times to plow that ground to get the hearts to soften. And I think maybe that's the reason that God was illustrating that. And I wanted you to see it. Now, the next story that we're going to look at here in 1 Kings is clearly not Elijah's finest hour. It is just not. It would seem to me it might be advisable to God to stop the story of Elijah right after he finishes running the race back to Jezreel and start it up again at Nabo's vineyard. God doesn't do that. Why? Well, I think there's a, a really good example of that. There was a very popular Western, came out in the mid-60s. It was set in the time of the war for Southern independence, or maybe, if you prefer, the war of Northern aggression. And there were three key actors, Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Mario uh, Braga. And the theme song from that movie was very catching, but the film really had no redeeming social value. Does anybody know the name of it? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And it's interesting, that's the way God records his scriptures. The good, the bad, and even the ugly. And you're going to see the second two today. But God has a purpose for doing that, as we're going to see. Before we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. I pray that you open these scriptures up to us. These passages uh, become alive to us and that you have your Holy Spirit to just explain to us exactly what he wants us to see. Help us to understand what's going on in Elijah's life, in Elijah's heart, and then see if we find the same things in our hearts. I pray this request of you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
So what does he do? He goes home and he cries to mama. And we know who's the real power behind the throne here. We should recognize that. We have things similar to that in our nation. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And when then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, what is she saying? She's saying that by tomorrow this time, you're going to be dead. And I'm going to see to it that you are. Now, wait a second. Hadn't Elijah called for a contest on Mount Carmel where everyone there were either solely against him or on the fence and uncertain what position they were taking? Was there anyone who was standing with Elijah? He's all by himself. What happens if he fails? He dies. Ahab's been looking for him to kill him. And any excuse, he would have done it. That takes courage to enter a situation where everybody is against you. Nobody's for you. But he won spectacularly. And now one woman is aligned herself against him? Well, how... The way I see it, Ahab retreats to Jezreel, and soon thereafter, Elijah hears from the Sidonian harlot. Consider what she said. Why would she say, wait for 24 hours? Why didn't she just send somebody after him to kill him right then? I think she's not sure she can. She's heard of fire coming down from heaven. Someone out racing a chariot. I mean, nobody's ever done that before or since. So I ask this question. What should a man who had the convictions of Elijah remember that God was real, that he was God's man, and God had the power and the resources to enable him to meet whatever challenge came before him, who, what should he have done under those circumstances? Well, when I first asked that question, I was certain I knew the answer. What he should have done is this. He should have said, wait a second, Master, you take this back to her. Tell her, I'm not waiting for tomorrow. Meet me in the street tonight. And we'll see whose fire is more powerful. You bring with you whoever you want. And we'll just deal with this right now. There's no need to wait. Now, that was my answer. And after consideration and prayer this week, I found that my answer was wrong. Now, what is the thing to do? You see, if Elijah had said that, or if I'd have been there in his position and I'd have said it, what I'm in effect doing is saying... God, we're in a good partnership here. I think I know how to take care of this one. What Elijah should have done is said, Master, I'm the servant. Direct your servant what you want me to do. Now, he may have said, go say what I just said. He may have had some other plan. But Elijah chose a third alternative. Come on, servant, we're getting out of here as fast as we can. And he turned tail and ran. Now, I used to think when I was a lot younger, why are you scared of a woman? There is a survey that I read not too long ago. They surveyed both men and women. And the question was, would you rather have as your main arch enemy a female or a male? A male. 
92% of the men said they'd much rather have a male than a female. 72% of the women, of the females, said we'd rather have a male than a female. That tended to cause me to start thinking. And and then uh, through life experiences, I found the accuracy of those ways of thinking. So I made certain that I married a sweet, wonderful girl. (laughs) So that... There's no adversary positions involved. Now, you lost your train <laughs> no, my mind was just going other places, and it's probably not. You see, Elijah's not in partnership with God. He's the master. He's the servant. And he should have been thinking in his mind, when the brook ran dry, did God fail me? When there was no flour in the jar and no oil in the cruise, did God fail me? When there was no life in the, in the boy, did God fail me? When there was no fire under that sacrifice, did God fail me? When there were no clouds in the sky, did God fail me? No. There's not one yes in there. And so now you're thinking that he's going to fail you with Jezebel? No, he's not. Because, you see, even though we know about enemies, when God is standing next to you, no one can oppose you. That is, no one with a capital N and a capital O. And so, God had the power. Unfortunately, Elijah chose a third alternative, and that was to run for his life. Yes. Because Israel has backslidden, they haven't repented at all. They probably have heard about what Elijah has done. Most of the people were on were at Mount Carmel, and most of the people were at Mount Carmel, and they all turned to Yahweh, and they haven't turned back yet. He's in a position, and I'm going to prove it to you in a minute. He's in a position where of the four groups here that he has to deal with, that is the people. Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. He's one with the people. He's cowed Ahab. The only one left is Jezebel. He takes care of her. Israel is coming back to Yahweh, and he will be leading them back. All he has to do is take care of her. Now, I'm going to show it to you here in just a second when we get to verse 3, but I, I want you to see something here, and it's, I think it's an important principle that we need to see that we considered first last week, and we saw that Elijah passed it. But here's the principle. You are never more vulnerable to satanic attack than after a spectacular spiritual victory. You are never more vulnerable. And if you start looking through events in the Bible, you will find that happening over and over and over again. The key example is a fellow by the name of Samson. You'll find that in the life of Gideon. You'll find it in the life of Moses. You'll find it in the life of Joshua over and over and over. Therefore, pardon me? Why is it? Is it because you go to rest afterwards? I'm going to answer that in a minute, but it has to do with where your eyes are looking. The best course of action after such a victory is always first consulting with the master, the one who gave you the victory in the first place. What do you want me to do now? Now... Look at this verse 3. And he was afraid. 
Now, God's man's not afraid. God's man has courage. He was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. What does that mean? Panic. He panicked out of fear. And he ran to Beersheba, which belongs in Judah, and he left his servant there, and, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. Just kill me, Lord. It's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, let's look at a few things in this verse real quick. The word afraid in some translations is simply translated saw, and that's not a very good translation. It should be afraid. And Elijah has stopped thinking even realistically or clearly. But more important, he had a vision problem. What were his eyes on Jezebel and the threat she's made? Yes, ma'am. The notes are out of order. They are. I'm sorry. I promise I won't do that again next time. Work with imperfection every day. Oh, so is the numbering correct? All right. So just look for the numbers and see if we can get that. So the word there means to be afraid and clearly afraid, but he had a vision problem. Now, with that warning, he lets out to the south and beyond. Literally, he went south on God. But let me show you where he's going. He's starting up here in Jezreel. But he's going to head from Jezreel all the way down here to Beersheba. And up in here, Samaria and Jezreel, that's the kingdom of Israel. Down here, this is the kingdom of Judah. This is the southernmost part of civilized Judah. Down here is the wilderness. Beersheba is kind of the place that they would call where the west begins. It's, there's nothing really after that. And it's about 90 miles down there. So I want you to think about this a second. He's outrun the chariot, 17 to 24 miles from Carmel to Jezreel. He gets to Jezreel, he sits down, maybe he eats a bite, and then he gets the message. And he takes off running, going south this time, 90 miles, down to Beersheba, without, without resting. Then he says to his servant, I want you to stay here. And he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. Did he bring any supplies with him? No. He's clearly not thinking. He's still in panic mode, giving up mode. He's lost heart. He leaves his servant behind. And I think he does because he doesn't want him to see what's going to happen next. Because what's going to happen next is he's, he asked God to kill him. He's running scared. He's out of hope. His convictions have melted and he has no desire to go on living in a manner of speaking. Now, I want you to think about this. He goes all this way, and an extra day, he lays down on his tree, and what does he tell God to do? Kill him. All he had to do was stay in Jezreel, and Jezebel would have been more than happy to oblige him. But that's not what happens. And he runs down there, and he's scared. And what is the problem? He's taken his eyes off the first conviction. God's real. And the second one, that I'm his man. And the third one, he's got the power and the resources. Does this happen to godly men and women? Yes, it does. Let me give you an example in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew 14, starting in verse 25. 
And I want you to see it. I'm going to give it to you in verse. You can follow along in the scripture. Like this, 11 men beside myself in a boat both small and light set off for Gennesaret in the fourth watch of the night. When a storm came down at midnight, coming hard down on our prow, we started losing a headway, shipping water, stern and bow. When someone shouted, hey, look to starboard on the sea, the men screamed out in terror at a form we all could see a man was walking on the water. And we trembled, cried and prayed. Then he stopped and he turned and he spoke to us. It is I. Don't be afraid. I shouted out to Jesus, if it's you, then call to me. And tell me now to come to you and walk across the sea. Without a second's thought, he looked at me and answered, come. My insides turned to water. My mind went blank and dumb. I climbed across the gunwale looking straight into his eyes. But just before I reached his side, the wind began to rise. And I forgot him in an instant. And I sank just like a stone. I cried out, Jesus, save me. And his hand was on my own. Oh, man of little faith, he said, what made you doubt my word? Have you been this long with me without knowing what you've heard? We climbed into the boat again, and all at once the wind was gone. The sea was calm and gentle, and the day began to dawn. I, we knelt amazed and worshipped him for the power that he had displayed, for all that we had seen left us wondering and dismayed. But it was not till after Pentecost that I could really understand that even when I doubted him, he would not let go of my hand. The same thing you're going to see is true here with Elijah. You see, Peter didn't keep his eyes on the Lord. And down he went. He looked at his circumstances. Elijah didn't keep his eyes on the Lord. Instead, they were on his circumstances and down he went. You know, you think about this. Both of these men shared some common traits. We talked about Elijah being courageous and a hero. You know, when they see this man, a lot of them think he's a ghost walking out there. But when he said, it's me, Peter immediately said, well, call to me and let me walk to you across the sea. And Jesus said, come. Did you hear any of the other disciples say, oh, me too? <laughs> no. He did fairly well until right at the end getting there. But he did great coming back. You see, it just takes a moment for a man or a woman of God to lose the vision or the object of the vision. We've got to focus on that. You see, if when Peter had climbed out of that boat, he had said, now, son, listen to me, talking to himself, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at anything else, just on Jesus. Things might have been different. If Elijah, as he got back there and he was sitting down admiring the victory that God had given him, if keep your eyes on Yahweh, don't think or look at anyone else. Satan's coming after you. He doesn't want to lose this kingdom. Don't let him shift your vision. And things might have been different. So why does God tell us about this part of Elijah? Why doesn't he hide it from us? It's really very simple. He wants to show us that we are like Elijah. We can see ourselves failing just like Elijah did. That's why James said, 
Elijah is a man with a nature just like ours. Now, what has happened to Elijah laying there under the juniper tree? It's clear that Elijah is discouraged, despondent, and he's depressed. He's depressed. Now, wait a second. Some people might say, do God's men and women become depressed? Yes. Yes, they do. And they will. This is one of Satan's best weapons to use. Well, if that's true, one of the first things I think we do is let's look at what led to his depression. What caused Elijah to get in this position of being uh, depressed? Number one, exhaustion, physical exhaustion. He'd not eaten regularly. When, uh, when Ahab was eating, he was praying. And uh, he'd just run 17 to 24 miles as fast as any human being has ever run. And then he took off all the way down to Beersheba, 90 miles. So he's got to be exhausted, worn out. Number two, spiritually, he has had the battle of his life. Now, he won the first ones, but he was battling with those priests. And then he had to kill them all. That's not easy work. Killing 850 other men, even though somebody's holding them, you still, that's work. Was covered in blood. He then fervently and earnestly prayed. We don't know for sure how long he was up on the very tip of Mount Carmel praying, but it was a while. And he is both overwhelmed emotionally and mentally exhausted. When you find yourself exhausted in every dimension of your life, you are subject to becoming depressed, just as Elijah was. But the real base reason for that depression was this, failure. He knows he had failed. He'd lost his conviction. He'd now failed in his mission. The tool that God had spent so much time preparing for just this purpose was now dulled so much, God couldn't use it. God couldn't use him right now. He, the tool was too ineffective. So in that situation, what will God do? God's going to work on the tool. He never gives up on his tools. He's still going to prepare that knife or that chisel or whatever it is that he is using uh, Elijah as. Now, when you find yourself in a situation like that, should you seek help? I think some people are saying yes and some people are saying no. My answer is yes and no. You see... I found myself in that situation a long time ago. In those dark days, I was so depressed, I didn't know what to do. Uh, the stress was so great, almost every day I was vomiting two or three times. It was gotten to me. Uh, I was losing my law practice. My family was being torn apart. And so I went to some people for help. And what I figured out is all they're doing is trying to treat the symptoms what does that mean? That doesn't do anything about depression, does it? It just makes it easier to be depressed. I found a man, though, who would help me with depression. And I talked to a very godly woman. And she said, the first thing you need to do, Doug, is you need to read the entire book of Job, maybe more than once. And you learn the lessons there. And then look in 1 Kings chapter 17 through chapter 19. Ah, because 
This is God's answer. And if there's anyone that can take care of depression, it's the Lord God Almighty. So what I want us to do here is this. I want us to look at what did God do? So we're going to read this. Uh, It's rather long read, but we're going to read it together. And then we're going to go back and talk about it. Starting in verse five, he lay down and slept under the juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise and eat. Now, does it tell us who this angel is? No, it doesn't. Yet. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Who supplied the bread? The angel. Who supplied the water? So I think that was probably pretty very good bread. And that was awfully good water. You know, in our house... We've got a little white dog, and that dog is only allowed to drink filtered water. (laughs) Now, I think the water that was written is even better than that water. But be that as it may, it said, so he ate and drank and lay down again and slept again. And then who wakes him up the second time? I believe it's the same angel, but this time the writer of 1 Kings defines it. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him. Now, let me just interject here, you know, because I like to stay in trouble. There were some questions last Sunday about who the angel of the Lord was, if you listened carefully to the sermon. It says, and now we're only talking about the Old Testament now. New Testament is different language. When it says an angel or the angel this, or the angel that, it's an angelic being. But when it uses the phrase, Beneha Elohim, it's referring to the angel of the Lord. That's referring to Jesus Christ. You know, some of, wait, 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 he wasn't born yet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> He's God. He always existed and he always will exist. And he came to earth at times to do certain things. And you can find him in the book of Genesis saying that. The two key parts, so there can be no question. When Moses went to the top of Mount Horeb to see the burning bush, who does it say that was in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. When Abraham went to Mount Moriah and was just about to sacrifice his son, he had his hair in his hand, he'd pulled his head up, and the knife was about to go across his throat. Who yelled down, stop? The angel of the Lord. That's not just an angelic being. That's the special messenger of God. That's what the word angel means. And a messenger. Yes. The word Yes. That's key. Because that's exclusive. Hey, hey, the word the, that definite article. There's only one the angel of the Lord. Yeah, but it says that the angel came a second time. So it's referring back to the original. So they're both the same person. But here... The author makes certain to define who that angel was so that we've got it. It is the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And this isn't the first time that he's going to meet with, I mean, this is not the last time he's going to meet with Elijah. I'm going to tell you that it could be a different angel at the first, but there's no question who the second angel was. But when it says again, I think it's the same person. So, well, I'm glad we agree. I would, you were worrying me there for a second. 
So the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank and he went on in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, what's the other name for Mount Horeb? Mount Sinai. Some will say, well, that's in the Sinai Peninsula, right? No, it's not. How can it not be? Why do you think they call it Mount Sinai? It's on the Sinai Peninsula. They named the Sinai Peninsula the Sinai Peninsula because the Catholic Church claimed that Mount Sinai was on that peninsula. It's not. Let me tell you, they were there a year. When you have a 2 million to 3 million people there for a year, you would have all kinds of trash left behind. When the Six-Day War came, and you remember Israel took the Sinai Peninsula, they sent in immediately all these archaeologists, and they went all around that mountain digging, looking for the trash. There would be trash remains. They found none. Well, if it's not there, where is it? If you look up here, here they were in Israel. Right in here is Mount Carmel. Down here is Beersheba, where he ran. And you come down here, here is Sinai or Mount Horeb, Jabal Allah's. And that's where Moses met. Now, you notice what the land is here? This is the land of Midian. Who spent 40 years being a shepherd in the land of Midian? Moses did. That's where he took the people. He knew where to go. You see, when he came out of the land of Goshen, he didn't come down this way. He came this way. And there's a pathway through it. And if we had time, I'd show you. And he came right here. And there's a little point there where two million people could easily gather with their flocks. And that's where God, also you will find that on the north side of that, that place, the Red Sea there, uh, that gulf, has a depth of about 300 feet. To the south side of that point, the depth is about 500 feet. But right there, there's a little land bridge under the water, no deeper than 75 feet. And that's where they went with Moses. Now, he had been there before, right? That's where he saw the burning bush. Now, that's where Elijah's going. Because every so often in history, there's a man who God is going to use to such effect that he takes him to Mount Horeb. He took Moses to Mount Horeb. He took Elijah to Mount Horeb. Who was the next man he took? Paul the Apostle. He spent three years down there. Mount Horeb. Now, let's go back to this passage that, uh, and continue on. Then he came there to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, I believe that the word, word, should be capitalized. It's the same as the angel of the Lord. The word of God, the word of the Lord, that is Jesus. We're not talking about a thing. We're talking about a person here came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel has forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. Is that statement true? No. What he's suffering from here is something called catastropheism. And it's where you get under such stress or you let yourself be so stressed or are so covered with anxiety that you always think the worst is going to happen. 
And that's what's going on here. Because he, he was told by Obadiah about the hundred prophets he was saving by two fifties. And the people had turned back. I alone left. That's not true. He's just depressed. And that's what you do when you're depressed. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, before Yahweh. The person talking to him, he capitalized, said, go forth and stand on the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and pieces uh, and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. Now, let me tell you what this really is. Have you ever been somewhere where you've heard someone whispering to someone else? You can hear them whispering, but you can't understand the words they were saying because you're not close enough. It's not loud enough for you to hear. Have you ever had that situation? That's what it's describing. Okay? Somebody who's whispering, but you can't understand yet because you're not close enough. And it wasn't intended for you to be able to understand. So he hears this sound of the gentle blowing. And so, what does he do? He says, so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went on and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, wait a second. Didn't God tell him before to stand at the entrance of the cave? He did. And I believe he went out there. But when all those rocks were going around and the earthquake, he retreated back into the cave. So now he's got to come back out. You know, the fire was going on out there. He was hiding. You know, God's glory has a serious effect on human beings. So he, he comes back, he hears the gentle voice and tells him again, you know, well, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and this and that. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, when you have arrived there, I want you to appoint, anoint Haziel, the king of Aram. So he's asking him to anoint Hazael over Damascus as king. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japhat, of uh, Abel-Meholah, uh, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. So, what is God's healing plan? What is he doing? Number one, sleep. He had Elijah sleep. He let him sleep for a period of time. Then he woke him up, gave him food, and let him go back to sleep. And then when he'd finished that, he woke him up and sent him on his journey. Now, pressed people a lot of times sleep too much, or they don't sleep enough. God had designed a sleep program. This is what I want you to do. If there's depression, depressed people need to sleep the right amount of period of time. Secondly, what's the next thing he did? He provided him with food. Okay. I didn't show you this. I found this right up here, cave. This is Mount Horeb. Right up here is the cave that he was staying in. You, have, you access it up this way, and that's where it is. Pretty cool to be able to see a picture of the cave, Mount Horeb. Saudi Arabia didn't want you seeing these pictures and didn't want you to know that this mountain is located in their territory and they don't want anybody to come. They've now fenced it off. It's against the law. You can be put to death if you try to go over there without permission. And who do they give permission to? No one. So, but anyway, now let's go back to the plan. You sleep, 
You got to have the right food. The next thing is physical exertion. He went from a day's journey to South Africa all the way down into Saudi Arabia, remember, to Mount Horeb. He's going to have it as exercise. Many, most of the time, depressed people forget exercise and they don't do it. I learned, Doug, get on your bike and ride. And ride every day. And if you wake up and you're depressed at night, go out and ride your bike. Some will say, well, you shouldn't ride your bike at night. Well, I do a lot of things I'm not supposed to do like that. But anyway, that's what I did. Number four. Now we're getting to the most. Those are just the first three are preparation. Number four, a close encounter with the Lord. You need to spend time, the depressed person needs to spend time with God, getting close to him, meditating on scriptures, any, what it takes to unlock, you know, sometimes it involves a confession, repentance to get rid of sin so that that's not blocking you from your time with God. So you spend a close encounter with God, asking him if he doesn't give them to you right away with specific instructions of what he wants you to do. Give him those instructions. Get those from God. In Elijah's case, he gave him a series of instructions. I want you to anoint this man as king of Aram. I want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. I want you to go find uh, Elisha, and I want you to anoint him as, uh, as prophet uh, in your place. He's going to succeed you. Following and accomplishing those instructions gives you a sense of accomplishment and tends to break Depression, as you're accomplishing things. When you're depressed, you're not accomplishing anything. You just can't get anything done. Finding and spending time with the brother and sister of Christ of God's choosing. He spent all the rest of his time with Elisha, and he's working with him. And finally, you have to recognize that it takes a little time to work through it. You see, the next time we hear about Elijah is in 1 Kings 21. And a couple of wars have intervened. So, if we find ourselves depressed, what should we do? I believe we should follow God's regimen. Now, there's not too many psychologists or psychiatrists out there telling you to do these things. But you may have to choose between them and the Word of God. To me, once you put it that way, it's pretty simple what to do. I just wish somebody had shared with this with me at the beginning. Instead, God wanted me to find it out for myself so I could explain it to you. There's a few lessons I want us to look at before we finish and review to understand the good, bad, and the ugly here. Never act after a victory without a word from God. Never act out of a victory with, without a word for God. Number two, God, who speaks in a general whisper sometimes, always reminds you that he has many ways and many people to accomplish his work. He doesn't need you, you need him. He wants you, but he doesn't need you. He wants you, but he doesn't need you. Number three, God can and does comfort his discouraged servants. He will do that if you will turn to him. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Both words are true. He will comfort, but he will confront. Elijah right now, he had to confront him first, did he not? You know, you're saying all of this. I got plenty of people. Now let me tell you what I want you to do, Elijah. And then he tells him. He, he doesn't accept that whining that comes with depression. Finally, 
God always gives a new task when we think our mission is over. Elijah was in a position, he thought, I failed. There's no way to return. Jezebel has won. It's all over. But he didn't tell him yet about what he wanted to do with Ahab. He didn't tell him yet his plan for Jezebel. He just said, I want you to do these three things. Didn't overload him at all. Easy things to do. All you got to do is pour some oil on somebody. Three different guys. God has the solution. We just have to access it. Let's play. Father, I thank you for the time that we could get together today and that we could study this part of Elijah's life. The failure, because we fail. And Father, help us to understand that you don't throw us out in the trash when we fail. You're going to work with us. You're going to bring us back. You are going to retool us. Help us to understand your love and forgiveness, Father. Just like it was exhibited in Elijah's life and is going to be. Help us to understand, though, also there are other people who never have been exposed to these principles and are going through this kind of thing, sometimes in drastic situations. Help us to understand that we can help them. We can share these things with them. Now, sometimes, Father, when we do that, they don't listen to us or they don't think we know what we're talking about. And that's okay because you didn't ask us to be successful all you ask us to do is be faithful. So I pray, Father, that we will pray for people like that after we share with them. And if they reach out to us for help, we'll provide it. So I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.